Today we continue in our series, We Believe, where we are taking the clauses of the early creeds of the Christian church, the very fundamentals of the things that the Christian church has confessed that we believe in, and we're walking through those sort of piece by piece. This morning, we get to confess that we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, often in church history and through the writings in church history, the Holy Spirit tends to receive less attention in our theologies and in our liturgies sometimes. In fact, in the Apostles' Creed, um, the phrase concerning the Holy Spirit is really only six words long, as a matter of fact. A few years ago, a best-selling book was written by Francis Chan called The Forgotten God, and it was all about the role and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit inside of our lives, and I think he could appropriately title that The Forgotten God. All of that may be the case, but we understand, and we'll see clearly this morning, I think, that the Holy Spirit, friends, is a co-equal member of the Trinity. He is God not to be sort of left in the shadows, but He is God Himself. And He is the empowering presence of God with us even this morning. So friends, while there are moments inside of history when the Holy Spirit seems to fade into the background, oftentimes even in the life of the church itself, we, we in this church, this church itself, this denomination is in fact... Um, the product of a powerful renewal of the Holy Spirit just over 100 years ago. Now, scripturally speaking, the church itself, what we call the church, was born when the Holy Spirit fell powerfully upon the disciples of Jesus Christ. After his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he gives Christ, uh, Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father, gives the Holy Spirit to the church. He falls powerfully, and these gifts are given, and they're expressed publicly. And we read the story of the birth of the church and the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and here's how that story goes. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, speaking of the disciples, They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, these physical manifestations of the Spirit coming. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The church is born Peter stands up and he preaches the very first sermon of the church and thousands are added to the family of God on that day. It is this powerful moment and it's where our roots lie. Now I mentioned our denomination, the Assemblies of God. Our denomination was born a little over a hundred years ago when the Holy Spirit showed up again very powerfully in a rented warehouse on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. It turns out that between about 1900 and 1910, the Holy Spirit revisits groups of believers, in fact, all over the world. And some powerful things began to happen there in Azusa Street. And with the leader of that moment, the the human leader, if you will, William J. Seymour, who happens to be one of our spiritual fathers in this church and in this denomination. 
and the Holy Spirit falls and amazing things begin to happen and we get again a renewal of the physical signs that the Holy Spirit has come. And so it comes with tongues and interpretation with the other gifts of the Spirit, prophecy and, and words of knowledge, things that we in this church benefit from still so beautifully from time to time. But it wasn't just those signs, it was renewal of prayer and devotion and holiness. It was renewal of evangelism and it was a renewal of a missions movement that has literally spread around the globe in just the last 100 years. So we are the children of a fresh move of the Spirit 100 years ago. So forgotten or not, in certain parts of the church, the church of Jesus Christ has always confessed belief in the Holy Spirit. And the Scriptures themselves are filled with His work and filled with teaching about who He is and what He does and how He works in the life of His church even today. So here's a little bit of what we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, we confess who the Holy Spirit is, and we confess that the Holy Spirit is God Himself, the Spirit who leads us to Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Spirit of truth who brings us closer and closer to Himself. So we confess that the Holy Spirit is God. We will confess that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. And that turns out to be this magnificent reality inside of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit gives life in all manners and at all times. And we will also confess together this morning that the Holy Spirit is God with us now, our comforter, our helper, our advocate, the empowering presence of God with us, both now and forever. Here's what I want us to read together this morning. It is the part of the creed that speaks of the Holy Spirit. And this part comes from the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed, again, is very short. The Nicene Creed spreads it out just a little bit. Um, you can read it on the screen or on the bookmarks that we have given you and that we have in the table in the back. So, friends, let's say this together from the Nicene Creed. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. That's kind of an awkward ending, but there it is. He spoke through the prophets. The Holy Spirit, with the Father and the Son, is to be worshipped and to be glorified, for He is God. In John chapter 14, we have a long teaching, a dialogue between Jesus and His disciples when He is right up against the moments of the cross and the resurrection and then eventually His ascension. But in these chapters, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, we get Jesus revealing and teaching a lot of things to His disciples. And two of the large chunks of those chapters contain Jesus' teaching about the gift of the Holy Spirit that He and the Father will give. So I want us to read some pieces of this. In John chapter 14, we're going to read in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, 
for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Skip down to verse 25, two more verses. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus promises his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. You will see me again. But in the meantime, my Father will give you the gift of the Spirit of God himself, and he will be God with you. And this is what it will be like, and this is how he will teach you, and this is how he will lead you. This is beautiful. I will not leave you as orphans. Part of the power and majesty and the beauty and part of the amazement of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate on Christmas Day is that God himself is born in human flesh, the incarnation of Jesus. We, we spoke it together this morning in the passage that we read during worship. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so in physical form, flesh and blood, there is Jesus being raised by his family. And they know a physical flesh and blood child who is also God. And then as he walks with his disciples, they know a physical flesh and blood Jesus who also happens to be God. But here in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is coming up against the crucifixion, the resurrection, and his ascension. So he's preparing his disciples. There's going to come a point pretty soon, when I physically will not be with you. So what then is going to happen to the disciples? What then is expected of them? What will be given them in the place of the presence of Jesus Christ? So what happens to them? So we're told in Scripture, and we confess it in the creed, that Jesus and God the Father will send us the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit who is now God among us. In every believer's life, in every believing home, in every believing church, the Holy Spirit now is God among us. As Jesus ascends into heaven, he is handed off to the disciples the work of becoming witnesses to the rest of the world of the kingdom of God. But guys, this is amazing. They literally are not left up to their own power. But what, we can, what can we do? What resources do we have? Who do we know? How can we network? How can we make this happen? It's not left to that kind of human power. The Holy Spirit descends upon them, and that's the power that now moves the church forward. We are not left to our own devices and our own power. We're not left as orphans, but we're given the Holy Spirit Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our helper. In this 
version, it's helper, and other versions that you may have in your laps, it's comforter or it's advocate. That particular word, it's, it's a beautiful word. It can be used to speak of a legal advocate, someone who walks alongside you in court and pleads your case for you and helps to provide for or prove your innocence. And so you have a legal advocate before our Heavenly Father. But this word can also mean, in Jesus' day, it can be used to describe the person who shows up at your door with a casserole when someone has died. Someone who walks in your house and mourns with you and grieves with you and helps you through difficult times. The Holy Spirit's our comforter, our helper, our advocate. So guys, we need to understand some things about the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is not a passive entity. Oftentimes, and I think sometimes it's the language. So the old King James language is he is the Holy Ghost. And we use more often the phrase the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes even just the language puts in our heads this sense of some sort of ephemeral thing sort of floating out there somewhere. We can't really grab hold of it or feel it or know it or, or, or why, and we call it it. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit, he is not passive. He is active. And he is powerful, and he is work. The Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in the lives of God's people to build the church of Jesus Christ and to bear witness to the gospel itself. He is our helper. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is the spirit of truth. This is radically important when we understand how the Spirit works and how the Spirit speaks. When the Spirit is at work, Jesus tells us we are learning about, we are being drawn to Jesus Christ. This is how the Holy Spirit works. Christ himself tells us this, again in John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. As happened in our service this morning, the Holy Spirit draws us to the goodness and the promises of Jesus Christ and of God. So when the Spirit is at work, we're learning about Jesus. Understand this as well. Nothing done in the name of the Holy Spirit will ever contradict the Word of God or lead us away from Jesus Christ. If anyone ever claims to be speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit and it contradicts the word of God or leads us away from the good news that is in Jesus Christ, it is that human speaking and not the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. A little bit later on, on this same night in John's Gospel, John chapter 16, Jesus speaks again to us, to the disciples, about the Holy Spirit who he is and what he is doing. And so I want to read that passage, part of that passage. Beginning in John chapter 16 and verse 7, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now get that. They don't want Jesus to Who wants Jesus to go? And especially after he has been risen from the dead and it begins to dawn on them what's happened, this Jesus is the Messiah. He is risen from the dead. Now is the time for the kingdom of God. Jesus said, it's actually better if I go. It's to your advantage because for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So here's more of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Because we are lost in our sin and need to be made right in our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and draws us into relationship with Jesus Christ. Righteousness, the growth of the work of God inside of our lives that needs to happen. The sin in Phil's heart that continually needs to go. The Holy Spirit is there building righteousness and of judgment. The day is coming when the ruler of this world will be judged by the King of Kings himself and the Holy Spirit is shepherding, shepherding us step by step by step until that day itself. So we will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears from the Father, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, Jesus says. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. If Pentecostals go wrong in their emphasis on the Holy Spirit, it's often because they begin with the Holy Spirit and they don't get to Jesus. Does that make sense? <laughs> because when the Holy Spirit speaks, we're being drawn closer and closer and closer to Jesus Christ. So as we confessed, and as we've read in these two passages of Scripture, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Christ says, I will ask the Father and He will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, that your helper. Jesus says, I will give you your helper, the Holy Spirit. So we understand clearly, biblically, and we've confessed it in the creed, that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, the triune Godhead. So I want to talk for just a quick minute about the Trinity. In about 30 seconds, I'm going to answer every question you have ever had about the Trinity. You walk out here and you'll be, I wish that were the case. <laughs> Sometimes the doctrine of the Trinity is a little abstract. It's a little difficult to wrap ourselves around. But that's okay because when we speak of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, we're speaking of the very nature of God himself. So, of course, it's beyond everything that Phil can possibly understand. But it is how Scripture reveals God to us. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God in three persons. The way the language works with the early church is that God is one in essence and three in person. It's not three gods, not three manifestations of one God, but one God in essence and three persons. As one modern theologian who deals with this a lot likes to say, they are all God, but they are not each other. Chew on that one for a little while, right? So it's an abstract thought. So it's a little hard for us sometimes to understand. But it's the scriptural testimony about who God is, so we confess it and we believe it. But it turns out that we live in it. 
It turns out that it is absolutely an essential truth about God in our salvation, in our daily walk with Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the plan of the Heavenly Father. We actually live in the reality of the Trinity, the community of the Trinity as Christians. So we say things, for instance, like, by the Holy Spirit, we confess that the Father sent the Son so that whoever believes in Him would be saved. It is by the work of the Holy Spirit that I confess and believe that the plan of the Heavenly Father was to send His Son, Jesus Christ, in His life, death, and resurrection so that whoever puts their trust in Him might be saved. We literally live in, as Christians, the truth and the reality of the Trinity. I was thinking through this week how to um, sort of explain or deal with the doctrine of the Trinity, and then I was reminded of something that happened just this week. Um, I I think we're probably all aware of, and many of us maybe even spent some time watching the funeral of President George H.W. Bush, President 41. And he received that state funeral, uh, that memorial service in the National Cathedral with all of the trappings of a state funeral and so forth. He was a World War II Navy pilot. So one of the hymns that was sung um, at his funeral is the unofficial official hymn of the Navy and the Marine Corps, Eternal Father Strong to Save. The words to that hymn were written in 1860. It was put to music in 1861. It's something the church has been singing for a very long time, and it's something that a lot of people have been singing for a very long time. And notice this, the very first verse it's, it's entitled Eternal Father Strong to Save because that's the first line of the first verse. And the first verse goes like this. Eternal Father strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who bits the mighty ocean deep, its own appointed limits keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. Notice even inside of that verse some of the first things that we talked about in the creed. God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, he is the one who appointed the limits of the sea and the land. And so we call out to eternal Father, strong to save. That's the first line of verse 1. The first line of verse 2 is, O Christ. The first line of verse 3, Most Holy Spirit. The first line of verse 4, O Trinity of love and power. I find it beautiful that in a moment like that, in a state funeral, in a culture like ours, that hymn was sung, and we declared again, O Trinity of love and power. Isn't that beautiful? It's still inside of us somewhere to reach out to a great, mighty, triune God when we are thinking of death and eternity. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The creed also calls him the Lord, the giver of life, the giver of life. This is an incredible thing about the activity of the Holy Spirit. And if you're inclined to sort of track some things down, to follow some thoughts through Scripture, this would be a fruitful thought to trace through the rest of Scripture. As you guys may know, the notes that we give you that are in those uh, Those racks just outside the front doors often have the notes and a bunch of scripture for further study. 
in those scriptures will dovetail with the things that we've uh, read together and that will also sort of lead you down some other uh, paths to, to spend some time with. We've got some scriptures in there about that as well. But this is an incredible thing about the activity of the Holy Spirit, that he is the giver of life, both in creation as well as in the human heart. So it turns out that at the very beginning of things, the Holy Spirit is present. He is present at creation to bring order out of chaos and to bring light into the darkness. First two verses of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That then becomes our perspective. That becomes our touchstone as then God creates and creates and creates, and out of what was formless and void and out of what was darkness comes order and light and life. And there's the Spirit of God hovering over the deep as God creates all that we see and all that we know. So that's beautiful. And then when we come to the stories that that we think most about this time of year as we prepare for Christmas and sort of walk our way through Advent, when it comes to the stories about the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, Scripture uses the same imagery to speak of the role of the Holy Spirit and the birth of Jesus Christ. So when the angel Gabriel brings God's message to Mary, here's part of what the angel says to Mary about what is going to happen. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. The one who, if you will, brokers the transaction. (laughs) And Christ is born into this world as he overshadows Mary. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. And the Holy Spirit, friends, continues in this role. The Holy Spirit is our source for new life in Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. The source of power for our salvation. It happens because the Holy Spirit draws us to God. He is the source of our life in Jesus Christ. Paul writes this to the pastor Titus in Titus chapter 3. Now notice as we read these couple of verses, notice the Trinitarian formula. Notice how Paul talks about the role of God the Father, the role of God the Son, and the role of God the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Titus 3 verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's the plan of God the Father. He richly pours out on us the gift of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is the giver of life. 
So it's the moment of salvation that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. And then in addition to that, the Holy Spirit is with us for a new life in Jesus Christ, the kind of life that we walk day by day by day. And he becomes then our power for witness as well. So it's not just kind of one moment we get saved and then we hit cruise control and off we go until we die or Jesus comes again. The Holy Spirit is always at work in us. And there's work for us to do, things for us to pay attention to. One of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture about the Holy Spirit is Romans chapter 8. And part of that chapter goes like this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, Paul says this, For to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You can walk through life filling your mind, filling your soul, filling your habits, filling your daily work with the things of this world and the flesh. You can do that. That's just death. Or we can actually fill our minds, our habits, our lives, our priorities with the things of the Spirit of God. And there we're going to find life and peace. In verse 9, a couple of verses later, he continues, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Remember what Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to be in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, this thing one day is going to give up. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Something astounding happened in that last sentence. Paul attributes the raising of Jesus from the dead to the Spirit of God. And then Paul says, that same Spirit dwells in you. And if He is risen from the dead and the Spirit is in you, you will rise from the dead and you will be with your heavenly Father forever. The Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Isn't that incredible? So God has made new life possible. The presence and the power of His Holy Spirit accessible to us. He is accessible to us for this brand new life. Just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses everywhere you go, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So Jesus tells his disciples, the Holy Spirit will be with you everywhere you go, even to the ends of the earth, as you are my witnesses. Jesus told us in John chapter 14, it was verse 16. He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, your helper, to be with you forever. This thought stopped me this week, that the Holy Spirit will be with every child of God forever. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. You 
will never be away from His presence and from His power because He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And that's the language that Scripture uses. That as a child of God, we've been given the Spirit of God to live in us as a guarantee, as a seal of His seal that no one can break or overrule or overwhelm. And it means we are children of God from now forever because of the Holy Spirit. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and you are given the Holy Spirit to live in you and to begin building in you in the kingdom of God. No matter what happens to any of us in this life, you belong to God. You are His child and you will dwell with Him in His presence forever. I will give you the help of the Holy Spirit and He will be with you forever. As I was sort of rolling through this thought this week, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at something. I'm going to kind of see how this fleshes out. <clears throat> we took a look at the very beginning of the story in Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and, and there's the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, the giver of life, bringing light into darkness. Well, I thought, well, let's, let's walk to the end of the story, the book of Revelation, as that book sort of reveals to us how God will unfold the end of human history as we know it and the beginning of His eternal and perfect and glorious kingdom. Well, how does the story work there? Right at the very beginning of the book, the scene opens and John the disciple is by himself in exile on the island of Patmos. He's been too cantankerous. He won't stop preaching about Jesus Christ and people won't stop joining the church. So we have to get rid of this John. So we throw him, you know, all by himself on the island of Patmos. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, he says, and I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The idea initially is this, that here I am on a day of worship, and I'm by myself, but I am in the Spirit. I'm in the presence of the Spirit of God here on the Lord's day. And as John says that in his book, the next thing that happens is literally the heavens crack open, and the rest of the book is revealed to the eyes of John the disciple. Three more times inside of that book, John says, and I was in the Spirit when... So I was carried over here to see this. I, I was shown this, and it was in the Spirit. So he is, even as he watches these things unfold, he is still being shepherded, being stewarded, being taken care of by the Holy Spirit. And in this fascinating moment, at the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22, we have an appeal. John sort of repeats. He speaks an appeal to anyone who will hear, to anyone who reads the book, to anyone who hears the voice of a Christian, to come and be a part of the family of God. And here's how the appeal goes. In Revelation 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let anyone who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take water of life without it's free. The Spirit of God and the Bride of Christ, His church, His people, even at the end of all things, here they are together, calling to everyone else, come and drink from the water of life. I will give you the Holy Spirit, and He will be with you forever.
The creed says that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. The church has always affirmed, we've always understood that God's prophet, that God's prophets, God's word, scripture itself was spoken by, was shepherded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The apostle Peter actually puts it this way, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we have here is a trustworthy, divinely inspired representation of the mind of God, the will of God, the character of God, the work of God. Because none of this was created by any man or woman. This was all shepherded by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does that so that we have this divinely inspired thing we call the Bible, the Word of God. And nothing ever adds to or takes away from God's Word. But we also understand clearly that the Holy Spirit is with us and still speaks and still empowers His people. So as the Holy Spirit speaks today, we're not talking in terms of the Holy Spirit adding to or subtracting from God's Word. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Word of God being spoken to us in our moment as the Spirit moves. We go back to that first passage of Scripture that we read in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit falls, and Peter speaks that first sermon of the church. And as he's explaining to everyone who is gathered what the Holy Spirit just did, he explains it by quoting Old Testament Scripture from the book of Joel. And here's part of what he says. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Then he says later in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. God who is among us now. We are not just because of our denomination, not just because of our heritage in the last 100 years. We are because we are children of God. We are people of the Spirit. We have been given life by the Spirit of God. He draws us to Himself. He gives us the life and the breath that we need to confess and to live that Jesus Christ is Lord. We live life today in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He continues to speak to his people. He opens our hearts and minds to the truth of God himself. He is the spirit of truth, and he will guide us into everything Jesus has said. He gives gifts to the church. Part of what's hard about doing a sort of six-week series on We Believe, on the creeds, is that that six-week series could easily be a six-month-long series. But the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Read Romans chapter 12. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, and read about the kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives for the building up and the edification of the body, in which get exercised here in such beautiful ways. This is the Holy Spirit building up the body, speaking to you and to me. He gives the gifts. 
that superintend the church, that build the church, and that shepherd us <laughs> to our face-to-face meeting with Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is shepherding each and every one of us as child, children of God into eternity itself. He is with us today, and He calls us to come to Christ. He calls us to draw near to Him, to be forgiven, healed, and transformed by His glorious power. And He will carry us into the eternal presence of God our Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.